This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. As the weeks go by in 2017, more and more conversation is going to be surrounding tax reform. The expectation is that the White House would like to get something done this year and have it in place to start 2018. But there are many, many questions surrounding this issue and many, many facts still to be brought forth, both on the personal and the corporate tax side. Jennifer Bluen is the Associate Professor of Accounting here at the Wharton School. She joins us in studio to talk about this volume of questions that so many people have right now. Great to see you again, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. I I guess let's start on the personal side for a second. We'll get into the corporate, uh, which is uh, really your bailiwick here. But on the personal side... We hear so many things. I, I mean, we're, we're going to have the groupings from seven down to three. There could be savings for people, but there could be more savings by the people at the top end of the income bracket. Where should people hang their hat right now when they're thinking about what they may or may not see? Well, I think ultimately the issue is is that the bulk of our tax revenue comes from the individual base, right? There's just, I think, 150 million individual returns relative to, you know, what, 10 million maybe corporate returns. Right. So... There was the, the numbers. Now, the problem is, is we want to have some sort of sweeping reform, but how do we pay for it? Um, ultimately, it's going to have to be some give and takes with regard to the individual items. And so simplifying it, I think that's what we've seen with the recent Trump proposal, the White House proposal, is really more about simplification, right? Bringing down from seven rates to three, um, saying let's just give one big standard deduction and take away the deductibility of the state and local taxes, get mm-hmm. rid of AMT, and of course, my personal favorite, get rid of the death tax, right? Right, right. So wrap all those together, and you know, it sounds pretty feasible. But what the big item, I think, with regard to the individual taxation is this treatment of the pass-through income, mm-hmm. which is if you're self-employed, right? Does it seem equitable that we should give some sort of rate reduction to um, – business income that's in a corporation, like a publicly traded corporation, relative to the mom and pops who are running sort of some sort of, um, you know, shop or business that they have maybe many meaningful number of employees, but yet they should be subject to the to the high 35 percent tax rate, which is even the the, the proposed reduction from 40 percent. And I think you get an equity or fairness discussion. So the current proposal says, no, that income, too, should be subject to a to a lower tax rate. That's great. But then where do you define business income versus labor income or salary income? Then is it fair that because I do my teaching through a university, I will be subject to a 35 percent tax rate? But yet if I set up as my own mom and pop shop, right, and contract with the university, I would get a a 15% rate, right? So it also has self-employment implications, right, um, in terms of – uh, Social Security and FICA, yeah. right? So yeah. if you're self-employed, everybody has a responsibility to pay their appropriate payroll taxes. So can you have 15% business income without it being self-employed? <laughs> There's a lot of dynamics, I think, in play, and, and we just have the bare bones of an outline of what might happen. How, how, how much of a change are we talking about structurally, potentially, 
with with the tax system right now. I mean, because as you said, I mean, this has been an idea to try and really pare this down and take what is what you know hundreds of pages of tax code right. and really kind of trim it down to make it more simplified for for the American consumer, but also for the businesses as well. Well, I think I think that would be fantastic, but this is a it would be a massive undertaking. Every time you say simplification, yeah, right. <laughs> I think all we do is <laughs> is multiply right the number of code and regulation pages that we'll ultimately have to wade through. Right, and it's it's easy to say we're going to make something simple, and and if we just say flatly, which is what this proposal does is say, hey, everybody that has business income is 15%. Yeah. But then somebody has to score it and say, well, do you recognize that bringing us down to 15%, you know, each percent costs, you know, a, an enormous sum of money, sure. multiply that over a number of years, and, and you've got a, you know, you've got some sort of significant fiscal deficit. What, right? a, lo- what a lot of people, uh, some people talk about, but a lot of people don't realize is that obviously that 35% number that is out there for a lot of corporations, many of them aren't paying that. They're paying lower than that 35% number already. So, I mean, for this, for this, narrative about every business is paying 35%. It's it's not the case. Well, and this is interesting. This is a conversation about what is your average tax rate yeah. versus your marginal tax rate. Yeah. So if if you and I were to even look at our personal returns, right, we might look like we're falling into what would be a 28% statutory tax rate. Right. But if you take our total taxes paid over all our income, including our dividends and everything else, right, that tax rate is going to be lower yep. just merely because we know we have a preference for what we call investment income in the United States. Yep. Well, corporations are, and, and being I'm going to talk now specifically about corporations relative to the mom and pops and the yep. pass through business income is they get things like depreciation. Bonus depreciation is something we have right now. So what it says is if you buy a million dollar machine, you get to deduct it immediately. Yep. And what that does is it makes the cost of buying that machine a little bit cheaper, yep. right? Because yep. now you get a 35% shield on that yep. income, and that's good news. But what it means then is when I look at their average tax rate this year on the income, it's something less than 35%. And so the argument's been made is the corporations really aren't paying 35%. Okay. But so they've bought their million-dollar machine, and they've made some, uh, they, they've made some sort of um, – income on their existing operations. Okay. They buy a million dollar machine and they make five or ten million dollars more. Recognize though that their average tax rate's gonna rise because every time they make an additional dollar, they're not gonna buy an additional dollar of machine. Right. So at the margin, I would make the argument is that they are paying thirty five percent. Okay. Right. And that's where ultimately I think the decision making comes in is at the margin, right? Will I do this activity and how expensive it to me? And that's the rate that I think is relevant that we don't see in a lot of the data. Because it's always looking at some aggregate burden over a notion of income. And seemingly that that's a, a story which uh, has been talked a little bit about, but maybe not enough, is the fact that there is an element to this tax reform that plays into, you know, whatever the rates may end up being, the the possible growth on the back end ends up bumping up the tax rate. And that's a discussion that is really happening on both the personal and on the corporate side. A lot of people believe, well, if, you know, on the personal side, if you're lowering the tax rate, people are going to spend more money and they have the potential to get a better job and they may make more money. And that bumps up the tax rate on the personal side. Same thing for corporate. That's right. So right now, if you're, you know, you're paying, you're collecting something less than 35% on a billion dollars. But if I can grow that 
to $30 billion and collect 15%, I'm still better off. Yeah. And that's ultimately what the notion of this the existing, well, proposed legislation, right? The pl- proposed change in the system would say, well, growth will help us pay for it. Yeah. And I, and I think there is some evidence to that is, you know, we can look back to some of the capital gains tax rate cuts and dividend tax rates cuts that have happened over history. Yeah. And what you see is there's, there's I think, two elements to reducing the rate, particularly on, on, on this type of income. One is, well, I'm more likely to report it, right, if I feel like the tax rate is ultimately going to be, you know, sure. be acceptable to sure, me a lower yeah. rate. And the second is, is, you know, I'm, I've always been reporting it, but maybe I'll trade more, right? Maybe, as you said, I will buy more, I will do more activity because this burden seems more appropriate. Right. And I think that's where we're in the discussion now, particularly with regard to corporations. We want corporations to be doing business in the United States. Sure, yeah. Um, I think if you talk to most of our public companies, they would say, we like being in the United States, right? We yeah. like the fact that we've got good court system, right? Good infrastructure, skilled labor. But can we really justify being here at 35% right. when I can be in the United Kingdom, which is a five-hour plane ride away, yeah. and they speak English, and they have a 19% tax rate, soon right. to be yeah. 17. Yeah. And I think this is hopefully the dialogue that needs to be had. Can, can this work at 15%? Can, can the corporate tax rate really survive at 15%? Because that seemingly is, is one of the big discussions. Does it need to be 15? Does it need to be 20? Does it need to be somewhere in the middle right now? I mean, that may be the, the, the trillion-dollar question at this point. That, that is. I, a trillion, I always call it the $64,000 question. But, yeah, it, it really <laughs> Inflation, is. Inflation. <laughs> exactly. I've moved it way up. Right. <laughs> exactly. Is But how are you going to pay for it? And right. And the argument is, is right now is if we reduce to 15, we'll grow enough to pay for it. Right. And, and, and I am not qualified to say, yeah, I think that will. I would cross my fingers and hope that it would. But I think that's why the existing is, is I think there's cryptic arguments about we'll eliminate certain tax breaks for special interests. to right, help. Yeah. You know, that's always the yeah. we'll grow and we'll we'll close other loopholes will help us pay for that. I, I mean, I think that said. If you're just looking at reducing the tax rate on corporations, I think that's viable. Once we start talking about reducing the cap, the, the tax rate to 15% on all business income and yeah. pass through both, then we have to start thinking about some backstops or some additional you know, limitations that we have to have. We're talking with Jennifer Bluen of the Wharton School here. We're talking about uh, tax reform uh, on the personal and on the corporate side. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in and ask a question of Jennifer, 844-942-7866. Obviously, for... For the narrative on the corporate side, one of the big topics is this potential repatriation of funds. And it's, what, more than $3 trillion, I think, at this point. And whether or not there will be a one-time 10% tax on this repatriation of funds. How important, though, I mean, bringing that money off from the offshore and into the country, a lot of people say it it, it is so important for the U.S. economy right now. Well, it's it's two reasons. One is it's it, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's it's imperative to sort of reduce or eliminate this friction within a multinational corporation. Right. And, and so I always like to point out is 
is if you have a multinational corporation who's located, who is, is born here, because we, we in the United States tax citizens, yeah. right? And yeah. so if you were born here, even as a corporation, the U.S. asserts its right to tax you in perpetuity, regardless of where you do business. So if you have a U.S. multinational corporation who is headquartered here, but has, say, a Swiss affiliate, that Swiss affiliate can put its cash in the Bank of New York. The Bank of New York can lend out that cash. But the parent, the U.S. parent of that Swiss affiliate cannot access that cash. Yeah. So that in itself sounds a little distortionary. So the fact is, is by changing our system or ultimately whether it be through some sort of um, one time only type, you know, transition tax. And then we move on to a system that we call it territorial, yeah. where where you only a, a, a tax income, at least corporate income at its source. Then what you'll be able to do is these U.S. companies will now have the ability to remit or repatriate this accumulation of roughly three trillion dollars of earnings back into the United States. Yeah. Now. We've we've all read the what I call the corner cases, right? The Apple, who has, yeah. you know, they're basically a small bank, right? I mean, come on, they, they I don't even know what their 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 cash holdings are, you know, exceed the GDP of, of many small countries, yeah. right? So what you have is a situation where you have a roughly two hundred and twenty billion dollars that could ultimately be back into the United States. Now they're not going to hire. You know, right. that many people, but at the margin, they're going to do something. And then what I think they'll do is they'll ultimately send that cash back out to in their investors who then can redeploy and invest in entrepreneurial endeavors, right? Buy maybe other uh, other corporations and, and get that reinvestment back domestically. Will most companies that are in that situation bring all of that cash in or will they bring a, a, a portion of it and still leave some of it offshore? Well, there's two. So first is we've got the cash. And then we have the earnings. Yes. So there's Correct. roughly yep. $3 trillion worth of earnings. Yep. The cash number, I think, is a fraction of that. Because if you have a multinational who has moved over, who is, who is overseas, because that's where its customers are, right? It could be profitable and selling, you know, consumer goods in France and the UK and Germany. Then it will probably reinvest those foreign earnings into what I call bricks and mortars, new plants, new distribution, new right. trucks, new people there. Right. That money isn't going to immediately come back to the United States because yeah. it's being profitable over there. But to the, at the margin, there will be that which is locked into probably cash or marketable securities will almost certainly be remitted back to the United States. So it's some fraction. But, but from what I was reading, uh, the amount of, of of earnings, these permanently reinvested earnings, has just skyrocketed in in the last decade. I mean, the right. the numbers from where it was in two thousand six, right? Exactly. I mean, it's incredible the amount of money that is has kind of kind of fallen into this category. Yeah, and it's too it's it's puzzling as to there's a couple reasons why. Is one is because the U.S. system. Right. And I think there was a little bit of an unintended consequence because we had a nice, a true tax holiday in 2004 yeah. where we told our multinational companies, oh, we recognize that this money is, you know, over there and we will give you a one time only holiday to allow you to bring all that cash back at, at five and a quarter percent versus 35 <laughs> percent. Wow. So what did they do? They brought back roughly four hundred and fifty billion dollars in yeah. that year's time period. But that was great. But what it did is it led firms to say, hey. Hey, I got it once. Yeah, right? you'll get it again. I'll get it again. Yeah. Makes it infinitely more profitable. Probable, and so you've seen this logarithmic buildup in their accumulated foreign earnings since then. The other is is because they've they've grown a lot in the United States, but where your expansion is is overseas. Overseas, yeah. 
And so I think that that's also contributed to that buildup. So that's why it is so important to be able to build a tax structure where you don't have to worry about this problem uh, uh, of the earnings and the cash being overseas as much as we have seen over the last couple of decades. That's right. That's right. And sort of what we started to see is, as I mentioned, a little bit of this distortionary behavior with the fact that, you know, hey, I, I, my Swiss affiliate in the Bank of New York, Bank of New York can lend, but but the U.S. parent can't borrow. But we've also started to see is this big inversion discussion, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. And that is completely an artifact, I think, of our kind of crazy system. Yeah. Um, so a U.S. multinational essentially figures out that if they're not, if they had not been born in the United States, right, yeah. they would pay less tax. So there's a lot of effort now in essentially size matching a U.S. multinational with a multinational that's outside of the U.S., preferably in a low-tax jurisdiction. Yeah. You do a business combination of some sort, which is completely valuable to shareholders, right? They And as long as they meet a certain ownership requirement, all of a sudden, is you've removed a lot of this potential income from U.S. taxation. And, and you were uh, talking about the fact that this actually may make it easier for foreign companies to buy U.S. multinationals because of the way the structure is of the tax system. Exactly. So we have this the, this notion of inversion, and because they are politically unappealing, is how I will put it, right, unpatriotic, yeah. is how they've been labeled, um, what the U.S. Uh, Congress has done over time is try to limit this behavior. They yeah. said, you know, and there is some abuse there. Don't get me wrong. And so they, they've, they've sort of said, well, there's this arbitrary notion where is if the U.S. shareholders, right, own too much of the combined entity, then there will be limits placed on the ability of this organization to access its foreign earnings. Yeah. However, if a if large enough foreign buyer comes along, right, they can buy a U.S. multinational and they will be able to access all of the U.S. multinationals accumulated foreign, permanently reinvested earnings, yeah. its accumulated cash, without triggering any of the sort of punitive issues in U.S. tax law. So now what you have is you have a U.S. multinational, two buyers, one domestic, one foreign. The foreign's going to be able to outbid the U.S. buyer. We've incentivized, we have a system that incentivizes sort of the flight you know, of, of U.S. ownership. Is there an understanding by the people in Washington, D.C. of this problem and, and really that you are setting it up for foreign buyers to basically be able to come in and buy these companies up. I think I think they're starting to be some awareness of this issue. And I think it's it's a very difficult issue to broach because is it's back to this notion of fairness, right? They they're in this situation and they have this accumulated earnings because they should have been paying US tax to begin with. Right. Well, that's the way our systems work. But can we back away and say, is that appropriate that the U.S. gets the right to tax, right? Every in every dollar of income that's made outside of its borders, right? Right? How do I? I'm a personal. I have a U.S. citizenship. I get the benefits of being here, right? Um, day in day out. I should absolutely be taxed here. Yeah. But if I am a multinational company and I have business in the United States and they do pay tax in the business in the United States, but I have a significant part of my business offshore and I pay tax in those jurisdictions yeah. offshore. Do I really have to pay the right. other 35%? Exactly. Yeah. Right? And I yeah. think this is, it's it's hard to convince people that that's probably the right way to think about this. And there's also this issue surrounding a territorial tax system for some of these companies that are in countries 
that have a ter- territorial tax system? Well, that's what most everybody, pretty much everybody else is. Yeah. And that's why the United Kingdom is a nice comparison. They left their worldwide system that we have in, currently in the United States right now um, in 2009. And since then, that's where you've started to see this inversion wave, as I will call it, is these U.S. multinationals essentially inverting to the United Kingdom, to Ireland, and those jurisdictions, because they're territorial now with a low tax rate. I mentioned uh, about the people in Washington, D.C. I wanted to bring up before uh, we got done with this is, I guess, uh, you're also involved in, in this new series of seminars that is going on for policymakers down in Washington, D.C. to really kind of educate them more. It's called the the Penn Wharton B School for Public Policy. Tell us more about it. You were just down in, in D.C. talking with a lot I, of lawmakers. I just was. So this is a fantastic program that, that PPI has, or, or Penn Public Policy Initiative has put together. And uh, essentially, they just invited me down, uh, invited a group of both House and Senate Joint Committee tax, you know, staff, essentially to hear a spiel Right, a discussion about what is how is the U.S. multinational system? How does it work? Yeah. What are the distortions? And have to, and you never know what you're going to get with a crowd, right? Right. Uh, given what's going on with tax reform, and what I found is was to be able to be down there for about 90 minutes, we ran out of time. Just the engaged dialogue hmm. and a very balanced perspective by everybody in the room, which gives me confidence that we're going to progress towards some sort of bill or. Um, meaningful legislation and that uh, there's sort of awareness, I think, about the distortionary effects of the U.S. system. Now, there's no bright line answers, right? Sure, but yeah. uh, hopefully I, I've done my bit. And I think there's some other faculty that are going down and speaking on a number of other policy issues just sort of to sort of lay, you know, um, without any sort of strong political bent one way or the other, just lay out the issues, right, and that we can understand the pluses and minuses because there will be winners and losers, right, in every change in policy. And, and that ends up becoming an important thing as, as you think about this, the structure of the government right now uh, and obviously what our lawmakers are trying to do or not doing at this point. It is important to have an outside voice and be able to present this information, as you say, in a very fair manner, just lay it out there and say, look, here's what we've got. You guys take with it and and do with it what you please. That's right. And I'm, I'm hopefully I, I, I'm here as an educator. Right. So sure. the fact that I get the opportunity to go down to uh, to Washington and just essentially lay out in, in, in very little different manner than what I would discuss with my students. Sort of here are the issues and let's have a debate and let the and let the folks in the room sort of provide their perspectives and we can we can discuss them. And, and yeah. I think that was the nice dialogue uh, of what PPI is sort of setting faculty and, and, and staffers providing them the ability to do. Great to see you again, Jennifer. Thanks Likewise. for coming in. Thank Greatly you. appreciate it. Jennifer Bluen, uh, Associate Professor of Accounting here at the Wharton School. As we mentioned, the uh, Penn Wharton Public Policy Initiative doing that uh, Penn Wharton B School for Public Policy. Uh, Jennifer, part of that. And uh, we're going to be uh, hopefully having other people that are going to be doing those uh, seminars coming up in the uh, weeks and months to come. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.edu. Thank you.